This podcast is a production of Vermont Law School's Environmental Law Center. And I joined this fight because as workers we face many challenges. There are many workers who are laboring 12 hours a day with just a half hour break to eat. The work on the farm is very dangerous and we're exposed to many risks. I've worked with chemicals on the farm. But why are we here today? We're here because the Milk with Dignity program is changing these conditions. A program developed by us, the workers, is transforming the industry. Hello and welcome back to Hot House Earth. We're your hosts, Jeannie Oliver. And I'm Mason Overstreet. We wanted to start this episode with a shout out to all the essential workers out there that are helping to keep us safe and healthy during the COVID-19 pandemic. As we go to air, Vermont Law School, like so many other institutions and businesses in the United States and around the world, is in its third month of operating remotely, and that's to help keep us safe during the pandemic. But while Mason and I adjust to this new virtual routine and learn to teach and serve our clients and podcast remotely, there are some workers who have continued to show up to work every day despite the risk of harm or even death to themselves. Those are our essential workers, like our healthcare workers and all the people helping to sustain our food systems, including farms and agricultural workers growing and processing our food, and the drivers helping to get our food across the country and the grocery store workers. In many cases, these essential workers were already some of the most vulnerable workforces in the country. For example, migrant workers in the agricultural industry, such as meat packers, and farm workers already face dangerous working conditions, low wages, limited legal protections. And these are issues that have been exacerbated by COVID-19. And in many cases, these workers aren't even eligible for some of the COVID-19 relief packages. Today on the show, we're going to focus in on farm workers and examine some of the legal challenges that make this particular group of essential workers so vulnerable, even in normal times. We're here with Molly McDonough, and when I say here, I mean virtually. So Molly is a communications specialist in Vermont Law School's Center for Agriculture and Food Systems, as well as our Environmental Law Center. Molly, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you, Mason, and thanks, Jeannie. I'm really happy to be here. So Molly, you went up to visit a farm recently, is that right? Before the COVID-19 crisis began, I drove up to Franklin County, which is way up north in Vermont, pretty close to the Canadian border. Um... Franklin County is really Vermont dairy country. There's big old red barns, lots of open pasture. It looks like what you would see on a postcard of rural Vermont. And I actually went to one of these farms, and that's where I met a man named Jose Luis. My name is Jose Luis Cordova Herrera. I live in Enosburg Falls, and I work here on a dairy farm, and that means I... Uh, milk cows. Sometimes I take care of calves. Uh, my day-to-day is a little bit different each day. 
I was talking with Jose Luis because his story is actually really typical of a farm worker in Vermont. Um, I think this might surprise some of us here in the state because a lot of us have this idea that Vermont dairy farms are super small, that they're run by families with just a few cows. Maybe there are some local kids picking up shifts after school. And at one point, I think it was like that. And actually, Molly and Tamridge, where you and I both live, I think it still looks a lot like this. It does in some places. Um, but over the past few decades, things in Vermont have really changed to the point where Vermont dairy farms now depend very heavily on immigrant labor. So Molly, how did, how did that happen? So in the U.S., milk prices have been stagnant or declining for decades. That means in order to survive, farms have had to scale up and increase their output. And because they've increased their output, they've needed to hire cheap labor. And as anyone who's worked on a dairy farm will tell you, it's not easy work. So you're milking cows morning and night, you're shoveling manure, you're outside in the freezing cold and in the summer heat and so on. It's actually become more and more difficult for farm owners to find local Vermonters who want to do this work. So about 20 years ago, when the dairy labor shortage was getting really bad, some people from Mexico and Central America started showing up in Vermont looking for jobs. And after they found work on dairy farms, word spread through their informal networks that there were jobs in Vermont and more people came. And that's how Jose Luis found out about Vermont, too. Porque... Well, before I came, I had a, a brother uh, and uh, my nephew who were uh, here uh, working in Vermont. And so I made the arrangements to, to come here and start working on a farm as well. So Molly, do you know how many Vermont farm workers are immigrants like Jose Luis? Well, it's hard to say for sure because many of them are actually undocumented. But we do know that in other big milk-producing states like Wisconsin and New York, the situation is very similar, and we know from a national survey that was conducted by Texas A&M University that 80% of American milk is produced on farms that hire immigrant workers. That means we must rely really heavily on these workers. Absolutely. Actually, the same study reported that if all immigrant workers were removed from America's dairy farms, 12% of those farms would immediately have to shut down, and the price of milk for consumers would nearly double. So let's talk about their immigration status. Molly, you said many of them are undocumented. Do we know how many or why they can't get a visa? Well, again, we don't know for sure how many undocumented farm workers there are in Vermont, but a recent National Agricultural Worker Survey found that over 70% of farm workers in the U.S. are immigrants. The same study found that about half of all farm workers lacked work authorization. But since that survey relied on self-reporting, the actual number is expected to be much higher, and it might even be higher in the dairy industry, which is unique because it's a year-round business. So seasonal farms can hire foreign farm workers through visas like the H-2A program, but there's no year-round visa program for farm workers. So some of these statistics might really surprise people in Vermont in particular, because I know when I arrived here, I was pretty surprised by the lack of diversity. You simply don't see many people who aren't white around. Yeah, I think it's because in part, um, a lot of these farm workers live a life that's very isolated or hidden from the rest of us. Um, like Jose Luis, a lot of them are working really close to the Canadian border. And within 100 miles of the border, Customs and Border Protection can detain people freely. 
and they do. They detain farm workers in Vermont all the time when they're on their way to the grocery store or going to a restaurant, even going to and from medical appointments. Jose Luis himself was actually detained a couple of years ago when he was leaving a dentist appointment. First, being a border state brings a lot of activity from Border Patrol up north, mostly. So there are farms where people don't leave the farm ever. This is Marita Canedo, who is a program coordinator at an organization called Migrant Justice in Burlington. I spoke to her the same day I traveled up to meet Jose Luis. The picture that you're painting is really these workers are like an invisible workforce. And it seems like they don't really leave the farms they're working on because they're so afraid of being detained. In some cases, yes. And um, a lot of them also don't have driver's licenses because for a long time it was risky for them to go to the DMV. Recently, that's actually changed thanks to Migrant Justice, the organization that Marita works for. Can you tell us how you got connected with Migrant Justice and what exactly they do? I work in the Center for Agriculture and Food Systems here at Vermont Law School, and we partnered with Migrant Justice to develop a handbook for farm workers. It was published in both English and Spanish, and it outlined their legal rights. So basically, Migrant Justice is a nonprofit that organizes farm workers in human rights campaigns, takes legal action against racial profiling, and helps people who are detained. Marita explained that they actually formed um, in 2009 after a tragic accident on a Vermont farm. In 2009, there was a young man called Jose Obed. He was 19 and he died of a preventable accident on a dairy farm. And that was the spark that uh, brought people together to see that there is a migrant community um, sustaining the dairy industry. So in order for them to be seen and get their rights, uh, basic human rights, uh, a group of Vermonters decided to start giving them the tools and the space and actually giving them the power to organize themselves uh, in order to seek justice. Marita went on to explain that a big focus of migrant justice is on what she calls fair labor and dignified housing. So basically, they're trying to stop the exploitation of workers on farms to prevent the kinds of conditions that killed that 19-year-old. A very common thing that we see is um, low wages, long shifts, uh, not good conditions on the housing, lack of clean water, um, heat on the houses. And we know, and the workers know, that this is not the farmer's um, fault. It's the industry that in the past decade has been um, consolidating in big farms. So basically this put a lot of pressure on the farmers for not getting enough uh, price for the milk that they sell and downward pressure to the workers, which brings to this bad conditions and also uh, some of the abuses are like uh, people have having have access to sick days or take a time off when they get sick or injured by the work that they are doing, which there is a very dangerous work. Later, when I spoke to Jose Luis, he explained that conditions for him have improved recently, which I'll uh, get back to later. But he also described some of the conditions he's experienced working on dairy farms in Vermont in the past. Entonces los ranchos no tenían... Farms didn't really support or or didn't have any commitment to 
the, the well-being of workers to, to see that we were treated well. I mean, one example there is the, the housing. And workers are living uh, two or three workers per room. You can't get enough rest. Um, uh, there, there's not space for you. And the working conditions uh, aren't as good either. You don't have a day off. You don't have uh, vacation. You don't have paid sick days. Well, that Migrant Justice is, is a really good organization for, uh, for our community of immigrants because we can talk to one another, uh, get to know one another, organize together. So through the organization, we can raise our voices and come out of the shadows and uh, leave this state of, of slavery on the farms. That leads us to part two of this episode. So now we're going to look at why is agriculture such a dangerous industry? Thinking about some of the types of exploitation that Molly just outlined, it's not just a problem here in Vermont or just in the dairy industry. It's actually a problem throughout the country and for all types of agricultural and farm workers. It's a really dangerous industry with few legal protections to protect those vulnerable workers. So we spoke to Professor Jenny Rushlow the Associate Dean for Environmental Programs at Vermont Law School, about some of these issues that she's examined through her advocacy work for small farms. I got involved in thinking about issues related to farm workers by looking at farm and food issues more generally. And um, in particular, the work that I did um, at an advocacy organization was looking at the challenges that small farmers face. And so I was really focused on the inequities and the injustices of trying to be a small farmer in a world that really favors um, the integration of and, and monopolization of farms. And in doing that, I, I began to understand better the employment and workforce issues related to farms and began to see that really um, it's farm worker issues that are at the heart of injustice in the food system. Professor Rushlow explained some of the dangers workers like Jose Luis and others in the agricultural industry face. At its core, agriculture is an extremely dangerous industry. It still remains one of the more dangerous industries for workers. Um, some of the harms that they're exposed to are heat and sun, um, chemical exposures to things like pesticides and fertilizers and cleaning solvents, um, mechanical exposures to farm tools and equipment, and um, and just the fact that the nature of the work that they're doing is very intensive over short periods of time. And so when they're at work, they're working extremely, extremely hard in difficult conditions. So, Ginny, when you and I were researching this issue, several people recommended the book Tomato Land, written by Barry Estabrook. It, it really goes into and relates to the dangers of being an agricultural worker. And what that book really showed was kind of the lack of legal protections for agricultural workers, especially undocumented migrants, and the lack of enforcement of laws where those protections do exist on the books. That book was absolutely horrifying to me. I had um, no idea just the um, level of exploitation that is occurring in our agricultural sector. Um, and of course, it's not true of all agricultural businesses. Um, Tomato Land was really highlighting some of the worst um, actors down in Florida, but it, it really hit on human trafficking and the sort of new form of slavery in the agricultural industry. 
and the really dangerous um, aspects of pesticide exposure. Your takeaways were were identical to mine. And um, I guess one one other theme um, was that really the book kind of hammered in that there's just this push to produce more for less, you know, and that's at the uh, cost and exploitation of humans in this case. We often talk about climate change as a threat multiplier. And I think this is true in the agricultural industry and some of those issues that we saw in the book Tomatoland and some of the issues that we spoke to Professor Rushlow about. And Professor Rushlow explained how climate change will likely intensify some of the issues for agricultural workers. The impacts of climate change that I think of as being really um, the top issues are exposure to heat, exposure to the effects of things like wildfires and the impacts on air quality that farm workers are breathing, um, the impacts of both drought and flooding, the two extremes of water under climate change, and ex- increased exposure to pesticides and chemicals that will be used because of the um, increased number of pests that will be creating issues in a, in a hotter, wetter environment for agriculture. So Mason, this leads us to part three of this episode, and that is what laws are in place to protect farm workers, and where do those laws fall short? Professor Rushlow told us that although a number of general labor laws do technically apply to agricultural workers, the protections are lesser for agricultural workers than they are for workers in other industries. And Mason, I think this is something that people might sometimes hear referred to as um, agricultural exceptionalism. So worker protection laws have exceptions for agricultural operations and for agricultural workers. For example, the National Labor Relations Act exempts agricultural workers from joining unions and organizing. And there's also something called the Fair Labor Standards Act, which provides protections like minimum wage, overtime pay, and payroll record-keeping standards. But agricultural workers are only covered by some, but not all, of those protections. Professor Rushlow specifically mentioned the minimum wage provisions. The treatment of farm workers is a bit different under that law. So under the Fair Labor Standards Act, farm workers were actually entirely excluded from those protections until 1966. They now have some protections, but not all of them. The minimum wage and record-keeping provisions apply to agricultural workers and their employers. Interestingly, the minimum wage piece only applies to those who are being paid on a piecework basis. So for instance, if you're if you're picking apples and you're getting paid by the apple, there's some equivalent for, for minimum wage that has to be met there. Unfortunately, overtime provisions in the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act do not apply to agricultural workers. And so that's one place where they are left out compared to workers in other industries. And then interestingly, the Fair Labor Standards Act has an exemption for smaller farms. So any farm that has less than seven workers in a calendar quarter is exempt from those requirements. And so a farm worker at a small farm like that would not have minimum wage or record-keeping protections. Another law is the Migrant and Seasonal Agricultural Protection Act of 1983. And that is really the principal federal environmental law to protect farm workers. Um, It has a few interesting provisions. It requires employers to disclose the terms of employment at the time of recruitment and to comply with those terms. And that gets to the fact that a lot of farm workers, particularly farm workers who are migrating to the U.S. to participate in um, working at these farms, 
are being recruited by labor contractors and being made promises about what the circumstances will be when they get there, in many cases being told lies about what those circumstances will be. And so this law is intended to create full disclosure at the time of recruitment. Um, and the law further provides that when using farm labor contractors to recruit, supervise, or transport farm workers, they have to confirm, the employer has to confirm that those contractors are registered and licensed with the U.S. Department of Labor. It also requires that um, employers have to provide housing to farm workers that will meet local and federal housing standards, which is a major issue because um, farm worker housing tends to be extremely substandard. Um, and that farm workers are transported in vehicles that meet basic federal safety standards and that are insured. And Mason, there's also something called the EPA Worker Protection Standard, and this is something that came up a lot in Tomatoland. So that's a law that's specifically aimed at workers and pesticide safety. And um, under the Worker Protection Standard, employers are required to do things like um, provide training for pesticide use, post information about pesticide safety issues, um, not retaliate against a worker who's handling pesticide. Professor Reschlow also told us about some promising federal law being considered to help address agricultural worker safety concerns related to heat exposure. And that was called the Illness and Fatality Prevention Act. And it calls on OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to issue a federal standard on the prevention of um, excessive heat in the workplace. And um, the, the primary tools for reducing the risk of heat stress are the provision of shade, access to water, and um, breaks for rest. Um, but unfortunately, OSHA does not have a federal standard addressing that. And so there's been a call on OSHA by a number of organizations. There was a petition filed by um, Farmworker Justice, Public Citizen, and United Farm Workers to call on OSHA to um, put forward a federal standard. Mason, as I understand it, three states already have some legislation in place for heat exposure. For example, California has had an outdoor heat standard since 2005, and it strengthened the standard in 2015 in response to farm workers dying in hot conditions. Uh, Washington State also has standards for outdoor workers. Um, I think Minnesota has some heat standards, but it's limited to indoor workers, unfortunately. And Florida, where we see so many of these issues play out, as we learned in tomato land actually doesn't have any standards in place at all for heat exposure. And there isn't a guiding federal heat standard. No, not yet. Um, OSHA imposes a general duty requiring employers to provide a safe workplace with access to potable water and shade, but it doesn't offer any specific standards to guard workers who labor long hours in excess heat. And we're going to need this more as climate change intensifies. All of these laws have exceptions, and those exceptions are for smaller farms, and can also be really hard to enforce. And that's another theme that came out of Tomato Land, the book that we were discussing earlier. So for instance, some of the dairy farms here in Vermont that have one or two employees would not be subject to these labor protection provisions because of their size. So the EPA worker protection standards relating to pesticides also have exceptions for small farms. And that has an exemption for farm owners and immediate family members. Um, and I think that's based on the idea that there's certain cultural norms about um, family farms being able to 
operate a particular way. And, you know, if they want to have their 12-year-old handling pesticides on their farm, the government doesn't feel it's their place to tell them that they can't do that. Professor Rashlow also pointed out that even if the laws did apply to small farms or farms generally, there's difficulty enforcing them. There's a real um, inability to enforce environmental laws of every kind. Um, That's why we have citizen suit provisions in so many of our environmental laws, because it tends to be those who are out in the world um, seeing these violations that are really most likely to know that they're happening. There are so many farm workers in this country, um, and you know half of them are are here with undocumented immigration status, and therefore are not going to call up EPA and say, you know, I'm being treated this way, and I know it violates the worker protection standard. Not to mention that they may not be able to read the notifications that are put up. Their employers may not have put up the notifications in the first place, so they may not even know that they have the option of seeking enforcement. Workers who are here um, without a lawful immigration status are much more at risk than those that are citizens or that are here with a lawful immigration status, and therefore... Um, their employers know that they're less likely to come forward with complaints for fear of being deported, and therefore their employers can get away with a lot more um, because they know that the employees won't be able to retaliate. The decks are stacked against enforcement for these protection standards in every possible way. And so, uh, sadly, it sort of feels like getting the law passed has nothing to do with whether you actually see any change on the ground. So Jenny, just like a lot of uh, these situations that you and I have discussed in, in our episodes, it seems like on first glance that more regulations is the answer or stricter regulations, but there's really a pretty serious uh, policy tension here with potential ramifications. And that's right. We could impose really strict labor laws and um, put in really stringent protections, but We don't really want to be victimizing farmers because farmers are also facing challenges and a lot of the issues that we're seeing with poor labor practices and exploitation is coming out of the economic tension that farmers are experiencing. So, you know, just like in Tomatoland, how we learned that there's a push to produce more with less, that's because farming is less and less profitable and they're all going out of business. And so, you know, we could impose really stringent labor laws, but what effect would that have on these farms that are already failing? Most of my work in this space has been on behalf of farmers, on behalf of farm owners. And so I'm, I'm f- familiar with that perspective. And, um, you know, the some of the solutions to these problems, like raising the minimum wage or um, tightening immigration protections or standards so that um, more domestic workers would be employed at farms, which might in some ways shift some of the power dynamics we were talking about. All of those things raised costs for farmers. And um, those of us in Vermont know, especially with the dairy industry, that farmers are barely surviving and and in many cases are not surviving. That's been true of farms for a few decades now in the U.S. And um, so I'm very empathetic to the farm worker plight, but I'm, but I'm also incredibly empathetic to the, to the farmer plight. I mean, these are, in many cases, family-owned businesses. That This is the, the 
going to be the last generation that could keep it going. Um, and so that's why this is so, so difficult to solve, is that there's inequities uh, on both sides of the equation. So Mason, that brings us to part four of the episode, where we'll be looking at some possible solutions outside of the law or in combination with the law that might have um, a positive impact on some of these issues we've been exploring today. So Molly, you spoke to Migrant Justice about some of these other avenues for change. What did you find out? Well, here in Vermont, for example, Migrant Justice is working on tackling these problems in a bunch of different ways. One is by helping workers understand that they do have rights. So creating resources like the handbook that they made with our Center for Agriculture and Food Systems. Here's Marita again talking about that resource. Actually, we work with the Vermont Law School on creating this booklet uh, about labor and housing laws. Uh, And we learn a lot. And it's a really good handbook for organizers, for other institutions. And we know that, uh, you know, for example, with housing, uh, the tenant law applies. So people can stay in the house after they are fired or they need to leave the workplace. the basic needs of having a house without pests or with clean water, you know, all these things. And the labor, it's all about um, not retaining paychecks, um, getting uh, time off for eating, like depending on the schedule, having access to a bathroom and different things that a lot of people don't think they have the right to or the access to because it's an immigrant community. But actually, yeah, we all do. So Molly, knowing your rights is an important first step, but if farm workers know that their rights are being violated, what can they do next? Sometimes migrant justice will help workers organize meetings um, to confront their employers and to stand up for their rights. Sometimes they'll also connect them with attorneys, but Marita explained that it can be really tough for these people to actually access justice. Unfortunately, the truth is that even in cases where violence on the workplace happen, uh, the process for the victim or survivor to go to seek justice and to get justice, it's so long and so complicated that most of the time uh, the cases are not successful in ending uh, the violence in the workplace. May, might end the violence against that person in particular because the person decides to leave. But uh, there, there is a, a need for more attorneys working and supporting and pushing for these people to get um, through the legal system some kind of justice. All of this makes it really clear that our Department of Labor and Justice System are failing a huge group of people. Absolutely. And so Migrant Justice has actually done something really interesting. They've created almost like their own separate Department of Labor and their own enforcement system through a program called Milk with Dignity, which is a worker-driven social responsibility program. So what does that mean, Molly? Well, the idea is that big companies buying milk can commit to sourcing their milk from farms participating in the program. Those farms have to follow a code of conduct that has been created by the farm workers, and it guarantees things like fair wages, decent housing, health and safety, the right to work free from retaliation, and so on. For example, the first big company to sign up was Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's agrees to pay a premium for their milk. Part of that premium then goes to the farmers so that they can improve conditions for the workers. But part of the premium also goes directly to the workers in the form of a bonus. 
And importantly, there's an independent third-party organization that monitors the farms to make sure that they're following the rules. So earlier we were talking about tomato land and the horrible conditions for tomato farm workers in Florida. Actually, Marita explained that Milk with Dignity was inspired by something called the Fair Food Program, which was started in Florida by tomato farm workers. Here's Marita again. Yes, so in Florida, the Coalition of Immokali Workers, uh, a group of uh, tomato pickers, started organizing for human rights. Uh, it used to be the number one place for human slavery and trafficking. And they started organizing and thinking about ways to end these abuses of human rights. And they figured out that the best way was to uh, bring companies and create a model where workers um, create their own standards, like a code of conduct, and make the companies pay the growers uh, to comply with this. Molly, do you think it's worked? Actually, it has been hailed as one of the great human rights success stories of our day. It's kind of become the gold standard for how to improve conditions for farm workers in the U.S. So when Migrant Justice was developing Milk with Dignity, they spent some time in Florida learning about the program, and it was a huge source of inspiration for them. Um, here in Vermont, there's still a lot of work to do. Migrant Justice really wants more companies to sign on to their Milk with Dignity program. Most recently, they started a campaign to get Hannaford, the grocery store chain, to sign on. But when I went to visit Jose Luis, who works on a Milk with Dignity farm, I could see that the program is actually making a difference. We went to his house, which is on the farm, and the house is brand new. It's well insulated. He showed me that he has his own room, and in his room he even showed me some snowboarding gear because he now has one day off every week, and he can finally spend some time learning to snowboard and just getting off the farm, having some free time. And here he is talking about how important that is to him. Under the program, uh, uh, we've been able to make arrangements and, and come to understandings, and, and uh, the work is, is more in line with, with what we expect, and, and you can uh, be happier working on the job, more content, uh, and, and it's very different. And the communication with the farmers is much better now because you can talk about uh, any concerns that you have about anything that's not right, whether it's on the job or in the housing. There's much better communication. So at the assemblies, we get to meet one another and build together, and, and that's why the organization is really good. And the Milk with Dignity program is, is also really good. It, it's good for workers and it's good for the farm owners because we're all benefiting. And so workers are getting paid better, we're happier on the job, and that means we're doing our job better and the, the quantity and quality of milk is better. And so when we're getting uh, the benefits and the premium from this program, uh, we're happier uh, uh, in, in our work and and that means that the owners are happier as well. And so we think that this program uh, really puts us all on the same team. Workers and farmers together, we're all benefiting. Another really important thing that's come out of this and other similar campaigns is just raising awareness. So farm workers are creating a platform 
they're amplifying their voices, they're reminding us that they're here and that they have human rights, just like the rest of us. Even though, like I said, there's some fear among the farmworker community in Vermont as a result of the aggressive actions of ICE and Customs and Border Protection, there's also a lot of bravery. So not surprisingly, some of the activists who are involved in migrant justice and who have been especially vocal about these issues have been specifically targeted by ICE and Customs and Border Protection. I asked Marita how she thought these people could find the courage to continue speaking out despite those threats, and I thought her response was really interesting. Uh, because a lot of people get afraid and think that, oh, if I'm vocal, I'm going to be detained. But it's not true that you are going to be detained because you're vocal. You're going to be detained because there is racism. And they want to keep us quiet to keep us as working cheap labor machines. Molly, this seems like a really excellent example of the power of advocacy and people voting with their dollars when the law falls short. Um, But even though this program has made a huge difference in the lives of many individual farm workers, it seems like there's probably still a lot of work to do. Things like immigration reform, better laws to protect agricultural workers, better enforcement of those laws, and better access to justice are things that all come to mind. But while still keeping in mind the economic needs of farms in this day and age. So Molly, circling back to coronavirus, how, how has this impacted the movement? Well, for now, Migrant Justice has moved their Milk with Dignity campaign online. So they've been doing a lot of online advocacy and organizing. But more broadly, I do think that the pandemic is making people consider for the first time about the meaning of essential work and to reflect on the fact that we literally rely on farm workers for survival. And I think it's an important time to highlight the fact that many of these people we rely on have been suffering for years from human rights abuses and a lack of access to justice and to let people know what they can do to help and advocate on behalf of farm workers. Yes, yeah, so Jeannie, the biggest thing that comes to mind is what, what, what can we do right now? Molly, do you have any recommendations for us on, and for our listeners on what we can do to help bring these issues to light and also, you know, have some influence over resolving them? There are a bunch of things that you can do. So in the short term, one of the biggest issues is that undocumented workers have been excluded from getting federal coronavirus relief. So those $1,200 checks that supposedly went out to everybody in the country, but of course didn't go out to some of the most vulnerable. Um, Right now there's actually a campaign in Vermont and it's led by Migrant Justice and a bunch of other organizations. And they're calling on the state to create a coronavirus relief fund that would issue payments to residents who were excluded from those federal relief checks. So if you're in Vermont, you can call your legislators and you can ask for their support on this issue. Of course, you can also donate money. So if you received your $1,200 relief check and you're privileged enough to still have work and not necessarily need it, maybe you could donate part of it to an organization working on these issues. There's a national organization called Movimiento Cosecha, and they have an undocumented worker fund. They're accepting donations that they're then um, distributing directly to undocumented workers and their families around the country. You can donate to a fund organized by... Justice for Migrant Women, which is raising money that will go directly to farm workers to help them pay for basic supplies and medical costs. You can also donate your time and your skills. You can sign up to sew masks for farm workers, um, which Justice for Migrant Women will distribute. 
If you're in Vermont and have experience working on dairy farms, the Northeast Organic Farming Association of Vermont is compiling a list of people with skills to milk cows on farms if workers become sick so that those workers can stay home. And if you don't have dairy farm experience, you can donate to NOFA, Vermont's Farmer Emergency Fund, to pay the relief workers. And I'll make sure we add all of these resources and more to the Hothouse Earth website, which is at vermontlaw.edu slash podcast. Molly, thank you so much for your help on this episode. Thanks also to Professor Jenny Reschlow and to our guests, Jose Luis Cordova Herrera, Marita Canedo, and Will Lambeck of Migrant Justice, who helped us organize and translate our interviews. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, check us out at hothouseearthpodcast.com, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you get a chance, don't forget to give us a review. Thank you.